Heavenly Father, when we come before your word, we are asking for the living God to, to open our eyes to see his glory, your glory, Father God, in the words of Scripture. And we're pleading with you, Father, that um, the parts of our hearts that are resistant, that are defiant, that, that are, are broken, sinful, that, that are that way, Father, and that oppose whatever it is you have to tell us today, Father God, that you would move those to the side and speak into our souls. That you'd move me to the side, Father God, anything in here that's not corresponding to the truth of your word, that it would be removed from the ears of the hearers, and that you'd give to me and to my friends here, Father God, insight into the glory of your word and your glory, Father, inside of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please grab them and turn with me to Jonah 3, verse 10. Jonah 3, verse 10. We are at the tail end of our journey through this book, the book of Jonah. And next week, if the Lord wills, we're going to uh, have one more Sunday to look at the overall message that this book presents for the church but this week, we're going to come to the end of the story, the end of the narrative itself, and we'll see how things come to a head for Jonah in uh, one final conversation with God, where it's very clear that the story did not end in chapter 3 with the repentance of Nineveh, but there's still things that need to get figured out, things that need to get sorted out. And so for context, for those of you who may not have been here last week, uh, in chapter 3, Jonah preached the word and Nineveh turned to God, and they pleaded with God for mercy. And verse 10 of chapter 3 is the result of their plea. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God sees this entire city turn from its evil way, which is repentance. That's what repentance is. It's turning from sin. And they cried out mightily, it says, for God to show them mercy. And God relents. God shows them mercy. He doesn't destroy the Ninevites. Even though we talked before about how the Assyrians, the, the, the city that Nineveh, or the country that Nineveh uh, lived or existed in, were evil and wicked people. They were uh, brutal and violent in many ways, and that's uncontested in, in history, and they deserve justice. Yet God gives them grace here, which is stunning given the brevity of Jonah's sermon. If you guys remember, Jonah's sermon was eight words long, and this city is transformed. It's a work of God. This is a massive, large-scale revival. There's no other way to interpret it. But what is Jonah's re response? Jonah preaches this message an entire city turns to God. What is his response? Is he overjoyed? Is he jubilant? Because like that doesn't happen every day. Maybe he's a little proud of his work that he was able to do this. Chapter 4, <coughs> verse 1 tells us. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, 
and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. So if you missed it because Jonah's really subtle, he's not happy. He is upset with what has happened. He's actually more than upset. The the Hebrew in verse 1 of this passage is literally translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Think about that. The work of God in granting mercy to Nineveh was exceedingly evil as far as Jonah was concerned. He's telling God that God was wrong, that God made a mistake in giving Nineveh mercy. And then he recounts the original command coming to him when the word of God came to him when he was in Israel. He was commanded to preach to Nineveh, and he fled to Tarshish. Why? Well, he says here clearly, I fled because I knew that you are gracious. I knew that you were merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you would do this. That's why I left. I knew that you were going to relent from disaster, and so I fled. If you were with us in chapter 2, you're probably asking, like, what in the world is going on with this man? In chapter 2, God shows an absurd amount of mercy and love and grace to Jonah as he's falling to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And now he's responding to the mercy, same mercy from the same God, but he's responding to the mercy of Nineveh like this. He is furious, furious with God. He's telling God to kill him because he would rather be dead than Nineveh to be alive. And so he is enraged with God. And so before we ask the question, why is it that Jonah is so angry? What is it about this equation that's causing him to be so angry? How does God respond to Jonah? Verse 4 tells us, it says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? That's how he responds. Then it says, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so God's response is a question. God says, is it good for you, Jonah, to be angry? God doesn't respond immediately with rebuke. He doesn't respond immediately with Jonah being put in his place, though he has a right to do either of those, obviously. Um, But he doesn't. Instead, he asks this question, and he wants Jonah to answer this question. Are you in the right to be angry? Is that right for you to be angry? Is your anger right now warranted? Think about this. Jonah has zero right in questioning God's purposes or grace. God owes him no kind of response here. God can do as he pleases. He is God, and yet he responds. God responds to Jonah's anger with gentleness and mercy, with tenderness, and he just asks a question, which is really the question that kind of hangs over this entire story from the very beginning. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Why is it specifically that Jonah, from the very beginning, the very first few verses of this book, has been angry about the idea that Nineveh would be shown mercy, that they would repent, and that God would grant them mercy. It's interesting that this story doesn't ever tell us in explicit terms why it is Jonah feels this way. Um, And there's a reason for the ambiguity, and we're going to get to that. But 
the story does give us clues and hints to try to understand his mind and his heart, why he is so angry. I think there are three clues actually across the entire Bible that give us an understanding of Jonah's mindset towards Nineveh. Nineveh was obviously an evil city. We talked about that. They were Gentile pagans. They were idolaters. The Assyrians were more violent than any other people group on the planet at this time. This is unquestioned in history. And the Bible tells us they were hostile neighbors to Israel, which we'll get to again. But given that fact, just their, their, their proximity to Israel, the hostility that they had for them, they were just north of them, <laughs> wouldn't the repentance of Nineveh be good for Israel? Like objectively, wouldn't it be a good thing? If that same thing that happened in Nineveh spread to all of Assyria, would not the country, the nation, the empire cease to be a threat, not only to Israel, but to the whole world? Well, Jonah clearly does not think so, and this hints at an underlying sin that has been buried in Jonah's heart since the very beginning of this story. And it says, even here, he's waiting outside the city, hoping that God changes his mind to see what becomes of the city. He wants God to change his mind. He doesn't care that Nineveh's repented. He doesn't care that there's been mercy shown to them. He doesn't even care that there's real change that has happened. God's the judge of whether or not changes have happened, and God spared them. There's real, meaningful repentance here. So where does Jonah get his conclusion? Why does he think God's mercy here is evil? Well, here's clue number one. Uh, If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 8, just after Jonah's been found out by the sailors that he's responsible for the storm, they question him. You remember the sailors? He gets on the ship. He's going to Tarshish. The sailors are on the boat with them. A, a, A storm collides with the ship, and they are in deadly peril, and they question him and listen to his response in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us, on whose account this evil has come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now on the surface, this is a fair response. This is completely accurate. But consider the the urgency of the situation, the urgency of the storm, the fact that the boat is about to break apart, and the reason that the storm is there in the first place. And then consider again his response. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. Objectively, the most significant thing about Jonah right now in this circumstance is that the Lord, Yahweh God, his God, has brought a storm, and that storm is about to kill all of them. Like, that's the most urgent thing. Yet he begins his response with, I am a Hebrew. Now, this is true. He is Hebrew. But why is that at the top of his identity hierarchy, his ethnic and his national qualifications? They asked him for his people and his country, but only after they pleaded with him to tell them whose fault is this and what is your occupation. His occupation is he's a prophet of the living God, and yet he leads with this, I am a Hebrew. Now, regardless if there's some kind of subconscious reason for this or not in his mind or in his heart, this order isn't arbitrary. Nothing in the Bible is arbitrary. 
Nothing is. And so it is telling how he responds here. That's clue number one. Clue number two is, is in chapter two. If you remember, Jonah had been thrown into the sea. He was sinking to the very bottom. He was about to drown. And God appoints a great fish to swallow him. And when he realizes he's been saved, he prays this prayer of thanksgiving. You guys remember that, right? And at the very end of the prayer, he says this, this powerful line in verse 8. I'm going to read it for you now. Jonah 2.8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You guys remember that line, right? We spent, when we looked at this, a good bit of time embracing the truth that is in this line. This is true. Those who have faith in false gods have rejected their only hope for love in the one true God. And that is 100% true. However, it is very ironic that Jonah would say this, that although Jonah knows that Nineveh has many idols because they're pagan, he is still blind to the fact that he has his own. And we know he does because when God told him to do something, he refuses to do it. And so while his idol may not be wood, gold, or silver, or anything physical that he bows down to worship to, it is very real in his life and very powerful. And yet Jonah says this line in his prayer of thanksgiving, <laughs> all the while knowing that he is holding on to his own hope that God would not show mercy to the Ninevites. That's what he's doing here as he says this prayer. And yet, he has his own idol. Jonah can see physical idols governing the hearts of Gentile pagans, of another people group, of another city, of another country, but he cannot see his own idolatry staring him in the face. And his hypocrisy here is made even more clear in the third clue. That's clue number two. The third clue, which isn't even in the book of Jonah, it's in 2 Kings 14, you don't need to turn there. This passage is talking about the king of Israel when Jonah was prophesying, when he was doing his ministry. It was Jeroboam II. And this statement we're about to read in 2 Kings uh, 14 is a statement that is talking about how Jeroboam, just before this, what we would read if we were to read the passage, Jeroboam was an evil king. And he did not turn away from or depart from the sins of his father. And his father's sins were blatant idolatry. Not too different from the idolatry being done in Assyria and in Nineveh. And so Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, was an idolater. But we see this in verse 25. When we find Jonah's only other mention in the Old Testament, we see this, this passage here. It tells us that Jeroboam II, of Jeroboam II that he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hefer. So God told the king through Jonah the prophet to build up the border in the north, and the reason why is that the Assyrians were conducting these violent raiding parties against the people of Israel. And Jeroboam obeyed Jonah, obeyed God through the voice of Jonah. And what's interesting, though, about this is that there is no record at all, ever, of Jonah ever engaging his king 
or the people of Israel with a call to repentance of their own idolatry, though other prophets at the same exact time were doing this. There's no record of it. And perhaps it's because it was just never recorded. Perhaps he, he did it quietly. Perhaps he, he never got an explicit command from God, so felt it wasn't his place. We don't know for sure, but the record is clear. Regardless how Jonah viewed his own people's idolatry when God told him to go to Nineveh to preach the word and save them from destruction, he flat out refused to do it. He refused to do it. So there's something clearly dark going on in Jonah's own heart. That's the only explanation we can give for someone who flat out says God's work is evil and asked to die because of God showing his mercy. And what seems to emerge here in these hints and clues is that Jonah was a man who was very proud of his own people, of his own national identity, and he desired that enemies of those people and of God in his eyes were gone. Now, whether this was racially incited or some sort of nationalistic, unhealthy nationalistic attitude, we don't know for sure. We know that whatever it was, it was not a healthy love for one's country. You can have a healthy love for your country. This was not it. This was toxic. This was wicked. And this was evil. Jonah is more loyal to his country and more loyal to the people in his country than he is to the God who made them and created them. And so much so that even after Nineveh repents, Jonah still wants it destroyed. That's why he's waiting outside the city. But there is a reason why, I believe, and you'll have to test this to see if this is correct, test everything I say, but there's a reason why the author doesn't showcase Jonah's specific sin. The author doesn't hold this out as, as, as the main issue, like Jonah was this or Jonah was that, and he doesn't. And there's a reason why, even though that issue of, of loving something like loving your own people or loving your own country more than God is abhorrent and wicked, it's not called out in this story. And I think the reason why it's not called out in this story is because the author and God ultimately does not want us to shoehorn Jonah's disobedience as the main problem with Jonah. But rather, the author wants us to ask the question, do we have idols in our own lives that function just like this? Jonah desires something greater than he desires God. That's a problem no matter what it is. That's why he disobeys. Whether it's devotion to people or country or anything else over here, that's not the main point. That's a huge problem, but that's not the main point. The author is forcing us to ask this same question of ourselves. Are we treating people around us the same way? Why don't we tell people about the gospel? Why, why are we not more open about the reality of Christ Jesus and the salvation that he offers if we really believe it? What's the reason for that? And it doesn't need to be radical, hostile, nationalistic fervor. It doesn't need to be racial pride or racism. Those things will keep us from obedience, absolutely, but it doesn't need to be those things. It simply needs to be something that we're not willing to part with, something that we're, we refuse to part with even if it costs us God. That's all that it needs to be. It's something we refuse to give up ultimately 
in order that other people might encounter the grace of God, which is Jonah's situation. He has another God. It governs all of his actions. And so this story is demanding that we, we reflect and think on our own lives what keeps us from doing what Jonah should have done in the very first verse of this book. Is it the fear of man? Is it uh, our reputation? Is it uh, maybe that we don't really know enough? We don't feel we know enough? Is it fear of losing our jobs or fear of losing friends? What is the thing that keeps us from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we share as Christians. And that's the question we need to consider. But what I want to do as we reflect on that in our hearts is look back at our text in Jonah 4 and see how does God deal with Jonah despite all that we've just read. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into, a being, into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that's the end of the book. That is the end of the book. There's nothing after that question that God asks. Nothing. Which is a very odd way to end a story that's had such ridiculous highs and such tragic lows. But this is it. Jonah's gone out to the city. He's sitting east of the city. And he's made some kind of shelter for himself, some kind of booth. And he's waiting to see if God changes his mind and wipes out the people of Nineveh anyways. And... Uh, then God suddenly appoints a plant to rise up, I guess climb up through the booth that he's constructed and give him more shade. And it says it was in order to save him from his discomfort. That's the phrase that's used here, which is astonishing given Jonah's words just before this, where he calls out God for being evil. God is showing grace to Jonah despite everything he said and everything he's done to this point. And that is amazing. But this grace is far deeper than God simply trying to comfort Jonah. The word discomfort in Hebrew is the word ra, and it means evil. Evil. So while Jonah's comfort is clearly part of the reason he's receiving shade for a moment, it is not the entire reason God is trying to save Jonah from his evil, not just his discomfort. And we know this because of what happens next. The shade doesn't stay. God, a plant, or God, God appoints a, a, uh, a worm, or he said, it says the plant was quickly killed by this worm, and then a scorching wind from the east um, blows, and, and Jonah feels faint. And it says all of these things were appointed by God. God appointed them. 
He brought them. He made them happen. They were part of God's design to save Jonah from his evil. Because there's more at stake here right now than Jonah's comfort. There's more at stake for Jonah's, Jonah's soul than his comfort in the moment. And this is something that I think Christians need to reflect on. And we'll look at more why this is the case. But think about it. God made the sun beat down on Jonah until he felt faint. God did that. God caused that to happen. And he did it out of love for Jonah. Because he loves him. Surgery to remove cancer is painful and traumatic. It is. It's painful and traumatic, but it is a necessary pain if there is any hope for survival. And God is doing precisely this to Jonah right now. That's exactly what he's doing. So how does Jonah respond to this? Plant is wilted, it's burnt up, it's charred up because of the sun and because of the wind. Verse 8 tells us, he says, it is better for me to die than to live. This is his response. Same thing he said before, but this time he's looking at the husk of a plant. That used to be his shade, a plant that was killed by God. And he's probably considering through gritted teeth the irony of it all. Think about this. He was hoping that God would decimate the city of Nineveh. But instead, God has decimated his own shelter. And so Jonah wants to die, which is why God responds to him again, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And he adds here, for the plant. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? In other words, you're angry because the plant is gone. Is that why you're angry here? The plant had sheltered Jonah, had provided him shade against the sun, and now it's gone. And Jonah is completely furious that all of this has taken place up to this point. And last of all, the destruction of this this plant, when he first saw the plant, he was, it says, exceedingly glad in verse 6. This plant had become precious to him because it was sheltering him. It was covering him. It was a gift from God. And yet now it's been obliterated. And so his response to God's question, do you do well, is not shocking. He says, yes, I do well to be angry. Thank you very much. Angry enough to die. You killed an innocent plant and you spared Nineveh? It's almost as though he's asking, what right do you have to do this? This is the heart of Jonah's response. This is how angry he is about this. And God's final word to him in this book is how this book closes. Jonah's response after God's final word is not important. That's why it's not there. Whatever Jonah said after this is not the most important thing. The most important thing is our response to God's final word. God tells him, you pitied the plant, Jonah, which you had no part in creating at all, a plant which grew and died in mere hours. Should I not then, the creator and sustainer of all things, pity the great city of Nineveh that had 120,000 souls, human souls, who were created in my image, yet do not know their right hand from their left? Shouldn't I pity them? these people who are blind to their own evil and wickedness. God is saying, Jonah, don't I have a right to have mercy on whom I have mercy on? Don't I have a right to pity these people in their plight, in their, their tragedy? And then the book 
suddenly ends. The book of Jonah is done with that question hanging there. There's a brief thing about animals, which means God values animals more than plants. But <laughs> apart from that, uh, his main emphasis is on these 120,000 human souls who would die, who would die if it wasn't for the preaching that needed to happen there. And we're left standing here. We're left, because Jonah's out of the equation, we're left standing here with God and with this question looming over our lives. How should we respond? How would we respond if we were Jonah? This sudden ending forces the question on ourselves. And what we see in this last chapter of Jonah is this idea and this concept of God's gracious discipline. God could have said, as soon as Jonah came out of the city and showed anger towards him, no more chances, I'm finished with you, Jonah, and granted Jonah his wish to die and be done with him. But he doesn't. God doesn't do that. That is remarkable. God slowly, lovingly, carefully works on Jonah's heart Though it is a painful process for Jonah and though it is a painful process for God, he does it and it is the loving discipline of a father for a son. That's what we're seeing in chapter four. God desires that Jonah would be set free from his hypocrisy, from his idolatry, from everything in him that has caused him to refuse grace to Nineveh. And these sins are deep, deep, deep in his soul. They are deep in his heart. And God is taking a scalpel to them, lest the cancer of these sins spread into his eternity. He is more concerned about Jonah's soul than he is about his immediate comfort. And listen to me, this is the most loving thing God could do. It is the most loving thing he could do. And it's what Hebrews 12 focuses on. So Hebrews 12, verse 5, says this. And this is God's word to us through the author of Hebrews. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes uh, Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, he says, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The author of Hebrews is talking about the same thing we just saw play out in chapter 4 of Jonah. God the Father disciplining a son who belongs to him. God is drawing out sin from Jonah's soul. And he's doing this because he loves him. Because he is a son to him. This is out of deep 
personal love, the love of a father for a son, the love of a father for a daughter. Because God chastises and disciplines everyone he receives as a son or a daughter. And he does this out of love for them. The author compares this briefly to earthly fathers who disciplined us for a time, for a short period of time, however long you're under their, their, their rule, and did what seemed best for them. But God disciplines us that we may live. That's what this passage says. Um, Be more subject to the Father of spirits and live. He disciplines us that we may live. And he means live with him forever. Be with him forever. And he says he does this for our own good. This isn't some subjective standard that a sinful father like myself is trying to adhere to the word of God and and has brokenness in me. This isn't a subjective standard created in the heart of a sinful dad. This is the eternal God disciplining his children for our eternal good. And it says here at the end that we may share his holiness. That is amazing. We need to stop and think about what that means. What does it mean for us to share the very holiness of the living God. What is God's holiness? Well, holiness is to be set apart for God. That's what it means literally. It's not just some sort of synonym for moral purity. That's part of the equation. But holiness is so much more than than simply righteousness or moral purity. Holiness is to be totally devoted to God, completely devoted to God, to be devoted to his, his person and his being as who he really is, and to be devoted to his purposes in the world, like preaching the word to a city that is broken and sinful and wicked and the hopes that they would repent and find grace. It is, holiness is to see the beauty and worth of God for what it really is and to embrace him as the greatest treasure in the universe. That is what holiness is in the scriptures, to know him and to embrace him with every part of our being. And this, the author of Hebrews says, is exactly why God disciplines his sons and his daughters. What God is after with Jonah, all of chapter four, and really the entire book, is his desire that Jonah would be freed from this deadly sin of idolatry that is rooted in his very soul. And this scene at the very end of the book is God showing his heart for the lost. And at the center of his heart for the lost is his profound grace, though people do not deserve it. That's what is at the center of his being That's what that's at the center of his holiness. And he wants Jonah to feel all of that. He wants him to feel that. These are souls of people who are headed to eternal destruction because of sin. And God says, should I not pity them? Should I not have compassion for them? How could I not have compassion for them? And that's what his last statement means. God is calling Jonah to join him in being brokenhearted and compassionate and sorrowful for the city of Nineveh and people who would otherwise be blind forever and perishing. And so here's the deal. The reason Jonah doesn't answer in this passage 
is because God desires for this question to come to us and to be pressed against our lives. Do we pity the city of Seattle like God does? Do we pity Kingsgate out here like God does? Do we pity the world like God does? Is our heart broken and compassionate for souls that we live with, work with, play with, eat with? Or are we simply just sitting east of the city waiting to see what happens to it? Does that describe our posture to the greater Seattle area or the brokenness in Kingsgate or the brokenness all over this world that we're just waiting to see what happens to it? Are we Jonah? Do we have in our minds categories of people? We talked a little bit about this last week, who we've kind of written off because of their culture, their politics, their worldview, how they view certain things we deem as sin. Do we have them written off because of their views of that instead of feeling what God feels for them, that he weeps for them, that he desires repentance from them? He's saying to Jonah, don't you know those people out there, don't you know that I, I love them? I made them. They're mine. I created them in my image, and they are lost and broken. They are lost and broken, and I've sent you to them to proclaim the mercy that you've received. This text is, is asking us, who is it? in our lives that might be in the category that Jonah had of Nineveh? Who do we have there? What group of people do we have there? What individual do we have there? Do we not share the gospel because of maybe complacency? Maybe fear of man. We want to fit in. We want to be well-liked. We want to be loved. If I say things that aren't popular, people aren't going to like me. Whatever it might be, have we given up on people, certain people in our minds and in our hearts? Because the physical destruction of Nineveh is nothing. It really is nothing compared to the eternal destruction of people who have rejected the one true God. I mean, it says in Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment rises forever. Rises forever. It never ends. And the Bible doesn't tell us these things to make us feel comfortable about the plight of people who don't know Jesus. The Bible tells us these things to feel a compassion for them, to fight for their souls, to fight for them, because God has sent us to witness to them, and I hope we feel the weight of it. The question at the end of human history won't be, why didn't God show mercy to these people? The question's gonna be, why didn't the people who've tasted the mercy bring that? to the people who needed it the most. So before the author of Hebrews gets to this area where he's focusing in on, keying in on the discipline that we personally feel, on God's loving discipline of a son, he opens that section in chapter 12 with a picture of Jesus Christ and his own pain and his own suffering on the cross. Listen to this. Verse 3 says this. Consider him. 
before even thinking about your discipline, before thinking about your own suffering, before thinking about all the peril that might be involved in you showing the gospel to this world, consider him, that's Jesus, who endured from such sinners hostility against himself so that you, the reader, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And his point here is that even Jesus suffered for sin, not because he had ever sinned. He never sinned or done anything evil, but to display his perfect obedience to God, even unto death. And that obedience, going to the cross, bearing the punishment for our sins, secured salvation to everyone who would receive him, everyone who would believe. Jesus embraced the sheer trauma and horror of the cross in order not only to bring the message of salvation to us, but to guarantee that we could faithfully proclaim it. We could boldly proclaim it. So in a few moments, we're going to be receiving communion. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, communion is an act of worship that you can participate in. And I would ask that you do. And that as you receive the elements, that you consider Christ Jesus and his cross. And first, the first thing we need to reflect on every week, really, is the immense love that Jesus has for us. For us individually. How there was nothing in us, in our sin, in our rebellion, that kept him from coming for us and saving us. He didn't see anything in you, and he's seen all of it. He didn't see anything in you that said, I'm not going to do it. He came for us despite us and went to the cross to save us from our sins. Think about all the brokenness and sin that you wrestle with on a daily basis or struggled with in the past. Jesus overcame all of that. That's what this passage in Hebrews is saying. Overcame all of it by ransoming his body on the cross so that we could be with him forever. And he did that because he loves you. He loves you. But that love, if it has been really tasted and experienced in our souls, can't be just for us. Because when he pours his love into us, that love reaches out to other people who don't experience it, don't know it, haven't tasted it yet. So that in our joy in God, we would become a beacon of his love for the entire world, no exceptions. There's no categories that are Nineveh in God's mind. Everyone, everyone who receives the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. They'll experience that same love. And what this means is that one of the things the cross paid for in our own lives is our own complacency and refusal to share the gospel. Jesus paid for those sins. To deny other people the hope that we've experienced, he's paid for those sins. So pivot from the love that we've experienced from God and ask him to remove anything that has been in us that would cause us to ignore the call to preach the gospel. And even more than that, cause us not to have the heart of God for people. I mean, that's really what, what is at the center of this. Join me when we take communion in pleading that God would deliver us from whatever that is, whatever is keeping us from doing that. And that we would share 
in his holiness, not just by following a command that he gave us, but by being devoted to nothing but what God's heart is devoted to. Like our devotion is for whatever he desires and whatever he wants. Jonah's story isn't ultimately about an entertaining pericope or a historical record or any of that. Jonah's story was designed by the Spirit of God. It's a real event. It was designed by the Spirit of God to infiltrate our souls so that you and I would have what we most desperately need, and that is the heart of God for a very broken world. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the book of Jonah, and I'm thankful for your grace here today. You are so worthy of our affection and our adoration, and we find, I'll speak for myself, I find my heart so cold and callous to you sometimes. And I desire that that would not be the, 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 the case. And Father, I pray that you would stir us up not simply to desire to obey a command that we should obey, to go into the nations and to preach the gospel, to show your love to the people you've sovereignly placed us around. But Father, I pray that underneath that command would be the reality that we share your heart, that we share your heart, that your heartbeat is our heartbeat, that your desires are our desires, Father God, that what makes you pity, makes you have compassion, is the same thing that makes us pity and have compassion, Father God, that we would remove from our hearts anything that would keep us, anything that would stand in the way from us displaying the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. We have the greatest hope in the universe. There has never been anything like this. There never will be anything like this in the world. The gospel is the greatest news in the world. Help us have everything necessary, Father God, even this week, to share your word with people who are desperately in need of it, to love them in gentleness and grace and kindness, but to speak truth into their lives not to prove to be unkind eternally because we refuse to offend if that's what's necessary, but to do it in grace and love, Father God. Gear our hearts to be like your heart, Father God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.